Support for The Gray Area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Hey, I'm Sean Ramosferum, host of Vox's daily news podcast, Today Explained. But this, of course, is Vox Conversations, where we bring you conversations between some of the brightest minds and smartest people we know. And today, we're going to talk about revolution. America just saw a violent storming of its own Capitol building, an insurrection. And we want to know what the world's political history can tell us about what just happened and what we can expect from here. So today, Vox's Dylan Matthews is going to talk with someone who knows a lot about the world's revolutions over the span of human history, author and podcaster Mike Duncan. Here is Dylan. Like a lot of you, I was truly shaken by the assault on the Capitol last month. It felt like something that shouldn't be happening in a mature democracy, something out of a revolution happening in some faraway country. So I reached out to someone who spent a lot of time studying revolutions in countries both near and far. Mike Duncan is one of the best and most popular history podcasters around. You may know him from his show, The History of Rome, but I got to know his work on revolutions. On that podcast, Mike uses each season to look in depth at a different revolution from the 17th century to now, from Haiti to Mexico to France to the 1848 revolutions that swept all of Europe. Mike is also the New York Times bestselling author of The Storm Before the Storm, which chronicles how the Roman Republic began to crumble. His latest book, Hero of Two Worlds, The Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution, will be out on August 24th. Mike has studied so many different revolutions, and I wanted to know, how does what happened at the Capitol stack up? Was that revolutionary violence? Has the U.S. experienced anything like this before? I really enjoyed this conversation. Mike has just a tremendous grasp of the different conflicts he studied and what they tell us about the present day. So let's get to it. Here's me and Mike Duncan. Mike, thanks so much for being here. You're my favorite comparative revolutionary person. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, your, I'm your favorite comparative revolutionary on, on the, podcaster. On the long list. Yeah, we're, we're talking a few weeks after what happened at the Capitol. But I guess my, my big dumb question to start is, as someone who's read a lot about uprisings, a lot about sort of moments when politics goes from the ordinary to in the streets, what were you thinking watching it? What, what kind of parallels came to mind? Well, I mean, so many because this is something that has happened all the time in world history. It's not something that maybe Americans are necessarily used to seeing or watching in this way, certainly not in any of our lifetimes. 
But this is something that I have seen and written about many, many, many times over the past you know, uh, couple of centuries. And then, of course, even going back to my work in Roman history. And so, you know, I've seen mobs trying to overturn elections. And so in that sense, the sort of like, oh my God, nothing like this has ever happened before didn't really strike me. But at the same time, I also wasn't really that surprised by it happening in America now in 2021 after Donald Trump lost the election uh, based off of everything that's been going on for the past four years. This was all entirely predictable. It was something that they were quite openly telegraphing they were going to do, and then they did it. And to be perfectly honest, I mean, I'm not going to lie and say, you know, like watching people literally storm the United States Capitol wasn't like kind of an insane thing to watch go on. But at the same time, it was like, well, yeah, this is this is what happens, not just in history, but when you let something like Donald Trump's movement go on for four or five years unchecked, this is where it winds up. So I want to ask about that that kind of mythology. You you talk a lot in the the podcast about ideas that often these revolutions are preceded by intellectual revolutions or liberal revolutions in thought, Marxist socialist revolutions in thought in, in your current season on Russia. What kind of ideological trends did you see leading up to this? And and how did those compare to some of the intellectual movements that you've you've seen culminate in, in revolutionary violence in the past? Well, th- I mean, this is all reactionary stuff, right? I mean, I know that the people that we saw on the Capitol, they do enjoy cosplaying as, you know, American revolutionaries, although they, ha- <laughs> and they've sort of moved beyond the, the Minutemen play acting of the Tea Party into something quite a bit more militant and more aggressively modern in their military garb. But this is white terror stuff. These are the Black Hundreds in the Russian Revolution, which, you know, if you haven't been, you know, listening to the Revolution's podcast week in and week out, the Black Hundreds were sort of armed gangs who were acting in support of the czar and against liberals and against Jews and against, you know, socialists and leftists who they thought were trying to undermine the true God-given power of the czar and the czarist autocracy to rule Russia and hopefully one day, you know, like rule the whole world. And so I've seen these guys before. They love cracking heads. They love beating up liberals. The presence of anti-Semitism in the mix is very normal and very par for the course. So it, it is not a revolutionary uprising in the sense that they are trying to overturn the state to advance it towards something or advance some new progressive ideological project. And if you go back to you know, like the French Revolution or even the American Revolution, there's something about progress wrapped up in a lot of what they were trying to do. There was an old world and they were trying to make a new world. And then you have these reactionary forces who are going to push back against that kind of stuff, uh, you know, represented by Metternich or Bismarck, you know, in Europe, who are, they are as happy to call out gangs to fight for them as the revolutionaries are. So it's not revolutionary in the sense that they are trying to advance from something old to something new. It is reactionary in the sense that they do not like what is happening and they want to drive everybody back into basically the the, the places that they had successfully beaten them into in the past. They want to send them back there, you know, whether it's women or racial minorities or whether it's the LGBT community. All of these people that we have seen come progressively forward in American history since the end of, let's say, like World War II, this is just a reaction to all of that. 
I wanted to ask a bit about the cosplaying, since there there is a, a degree of founder worship still in, in a lot of the people who were, were storming the Capitol. You've heard a lot of rhetoric about us being a, a republic, not a democracy. You've dove pretty deep into the ideology behind the revolution in, in season two of the show. Um, you have a new book coming out about the Marquis de Lafayette, who, who was really involved in the ideological development of, of both the American and, and French revolutions. What are they getting wrong about themselves? That might be a very basic question, but what what is it that, that the, the people dressing up like 1775 don't get about 1775? Well, the, the first thing I'll say is that the dressing up and recreating the past is something, it's not just limited to them. They are certainly doing it at this moment in time. This is something that that movements do a lot of the time is they hearken back to something. And, you know, you've brought up Marx a couple of times and when, when he wrote, but that the guys who staged the revolutions of 1848, um, a lot of liberals and leftists were straight up trying to recreate the French Revolution and trying to use tropes and imagery and iconography and even characters from the French Revolution to sort of bathe themselves in something. And then you go back to the French Revolution. Those guys didn't have the French Revolution to play act. So what, who were they play acting? They were play acting the Roman Republic, you know, like uh, Desmoulins and Robespierre and Danton. These guys were all trying to be Cicero and um, Cato the Younger, let's say. So this is something that's kind of normal. We, we do often like to put on clothes that are about a century old or two century old or a couple thousand years old to make what we're doing, to give it a certain kind of gravitas. To your actual question, which is, you know, what are these guys getting wrong about 1775 and 1776? Well, the, the first thing you have to ask yourself is what are they getting right about 1775 and 1776? Because if we're talking about a reactionary, let's just say it's a reactionary movement primarily driven by property-owning white men. And they are looking to exalt and worship the founding fathers as the spiritual forebearers of their movement today. And they are trying to recreate what they saw being created in the 1770s and 1780s. A lot of it, they're not missing the mark in terms of the structure that they are trying to recreate. Who gets to have power? Who gets to have votes? Who gets to sit in the House of Representatives or be a senator or be president? They would very much like things to look the way that they did in 1775 and 1776. And one of the things that we do need to grapple with as Americans, and many people are trying to grapple with this, and I, I have, I'm writing a book about the Marquis de Lafayette. I'm, I'm finishing it up right now. So I'm back in that scene. And Lafayette was, um, he's just coming out of the French aristocracy, and he had his own comments and views about what the Americans were up to. And you take it from Lafayette's perspective, he believed a lot of the rhetoric about liberty and equality that was eventually going to become also a part of the French Revolution. And so, for example, when he would see his friends, his literal close friends, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, also being slave owners while speaking the language of liberty, you know, Lafayette could never really wrap his head around that. He could not actually fit those two things into his head. And so he would he would criticize them for this. And he would say, if you want the American Revolution to truly like fulfill what I, I thought I had come over here to fight for, we all need to be abolitionists. You know, he was trying to talk George Washington into freeing his slaves. He tried to talk Madison and Jefferson into freeing their slaves, and they never did it. So the the fact that people can run around 
with this sort of racially authoritarian structure that they would like to set up, which is how the United States was founded, while also spouting language about liberty and rights and how they are the aggrieved party who is being unjustly oppressed by some, you know, nebulous power, which is a lot of what, you know, people like Patrick Henry and John Adams and George Washington were saying, even though they were the upper crust and doing quite well for themselves, um, you know, by any normal standard. A lot of what these people today who are supporting Trump, they're not wrong about a lot of what they say. So I think that is actually more the question that we need to be grappling with rather than trying to do a thing where we say, oh, actually, you misunderstand the founders and this is not actually what they wanted. And because if you go back and read it, (laughs) there's a lot of similarities there. Now, there are differences too, of course. And you read the Federalist Papers and, and most of what they're quoting about the way that the Electoral College should be running or elections should be running, like they've got their heads up their asses about all that stuff. Um, But we really do need to grapple with how much of this is not a break with American history, but is simply just straight up a continuation of something that's been around from the beginning. That's a really interesting point and something that I ask myself a lot listening to your show in that you're telling stories of these, these very dramatic moments in history. And I think a common human reaction to that is to try to pick someone to root for. So I I listened to the season on Mexico, and I'm rooting for Pancho Villa until I hear about some horrendous war crime he committed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, Yeah, Villa is very problematic. Very problematic. (laughs) Even even Zapata has has his problematic uh, elements. Sure. But I think part of what we're trying to do there is is trying to make like a usable history. And I think that's that's a really potent impulse. I think a lot of what Hamilton is about is, is trying to craft a version of the founding fathers and and the federalists in particular that we can latch on to as something worthy of pride. I guess I'm I'm wondering as we're drawing commonalities between some of the interests of the founders and the interests of of people today evoking them, how do you strike that balance? How, How do you point out those commonalities while leaving space to find things that are admirable about, say, the Marquis de Lafayette? Or is that something we should even be doing? Should we just be very clear-eyed and not trying to leave anything usable for ourselves if it isn't supported by the record? You know, it's it's a really tough question because, you know, I mean, I've changed my views a lot about this just over the course of doing the show. And I think differently about American history now than I did even when I was making which was the second season of the show. Like 2013 and 2014 is when I was making it. You know, and I've said this many times that the thing that really changed the way I view American history and, and my opinion about a lot of just so many different things is when I did the Haitian mm-hmm. Revolution. And that opened my eyes so much to what I was actually looking at and what I was actually attempting to defend and what I was sort of going out of my way to, even if I was subconsciously apologizing or being an apologist or defending things that really ought not be apologized for or defended, that I was doing it whether I knew it or not, because I did have that impulse to want to sort of salvage a lot of the early heroes of the American Republic, because I, as much as anybody, was was raised on that sort of heroic narrative of the American Revolution. And you say, yes, and they did these bad things, but ultimately they did great things. Right. And so the sort of light, bad things that they did, you talk about them, but mostly this is a story about good guys doing good things. And I think at this point, what you have to do, what I have tried to do, and I've tried to do this in the book, is just say 
what happened in its totality and not say, okay, I'm going to sweep this under the rug or just have it be an aside that George Washington systematically made sure that his slaves remained enslaved when he was living in Philadelphia. And he would like, if an African slave was in Pennsylvania for more than, I think like six months consecutively, then they would automatically Mm. be freed. And so George Washington would make sure to send them home to get like his toothbrush (laughs) so that he never, because he knew exactly how long they had been there so that they didn't get their freedom. So what we need to do is just talk about all of it collectively, but we have to see clearly like what was founded, what was created in the 1770s and the 1780s. And it was not this just like bastion of pure liberty. And in a lot of ways, they believed that they were caught up in something great, but they were caught up in something great for them. And I think it's very clear that most of them wanted ultimately to see slavery ended, for example, but they weren't doing anything about it. And they weren't really taking real risks to do real things that might actually hurt them. They were always fighting for their own advantage. They were rarely fighting for somebody else's advantage. And I think that that's a very common theme inside the American Revolution at this point. And that just opens up this whole question of like, what are we doing with the nature of hero worship? And do we really want to have icons be the thing that we rise and fall with in terms of like personalities or people? Or do we want to have the ideas that they brought forth be the thing? And we say these ideas are good about liberty and these ideas are good about democracy. The way that you actually implemented it was very bad, and I'm going to criticize you for it. But we ought to still try to live up to the things that you said you stood for but never really stood for. And so rather than trying to salvage James Madison or salvage George Washington as a person, we let them be people And we criticize them and laud them where they ought to be criticized and lauded without trying to apologize for the bad things that they did or cover them up. Okay, let's take a quick break. But when we're back, we'll talk about societal inequality and economic anxiety and how they fuel the flames of revolution. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money. How to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might want to check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb, arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. 
Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. One theme that you come to a lot on the show, and I think I've explicitly said in in episodes where uh, you're answering listener questions or or trying to draw explicit parallels is is the role of inequality, that in in deeply unequal societies, tensions similar to the surface and and can boil over in revolutionary tumult. So the Haitian Revolution is a very extreme example of this, but plenty of other examples as well. This is always a tricky thing to talk about in, in current American politics because the phrase economic anxiety has become a bit of a punchline in some circles since you you have people flying in on private jets to to storm the capital but i want to take it seriously because it, it's it is a pattern you you see and it's something that affects society even if it's not affecting the individual people so i'm sort of curious how you see that playing into sort of a rise in in revolutionary or extra parliamentary reactionary politics right now yeah i mean it's a real drumbeat in the show and it's a real drumbeat in my life, it just as I you know, encounter current events like anybody else does. When you have a society where there is just sort of this ruling clique that is continuing to advance and accrue more and more of the wealth of the society, the opportunities of a society, the security that comes with having all of that wealth and power – as that becomes the province of fewer and fewer people, everybody else does feel the effects of that. And like you say, like economic anxiety is just a, a euphemism for racism and for cultural anxiety and for homophobia and for misogyny. When we deploy that term, that's a lot of what's going on. But that said, I think that there's a lot of economic anxiety in the United States of America at present that is contributing to political tensions and political hostilities and really does ultimately threaten the legitimacy of the government and the state as it stands right now. And what I mean by that is, uh, okay, so you're working in journalism, which is a good example of this. I think that in universities, we see this all the time. In tech, we see this all the time, which is people – no longer having jobs that like are reliable, mm-hmm. knowing that you're going to have a job and going to have a paycheck and that you can go to bed tonight, you know, confident that when you wake up in the morning, you're not just going to be laid off and lose everything. Or that if you do, you'll at least still have health care. What we have right now, and, and a lot of what has happened, you know, let's say since I know it's been going on deeper than this because the destruction of unions has been ongoing for for many many years. But we came out of the Cold War and started restructuring how we relate wages, wealth, social security in the broad sense, not just in the program, but a real security: Do I own a home? Can I afford groceries? Those kinds of things. 
we started to rework how we deal with those things. And so people have been forced into these very precarious jobs, which was really accelerated around about 2008 and 2009 with the financial crash, right? And the jobs that came back from that have left people in a basically a permanent state of insecurity. There are no tenure track positions for professors. Everybody's just, you know, an adjunct or is an associate or is hired on a three-month contract. Uh, the same is true for people working in graphic design or for people at ad agencies or for people in tech. All those white-collar jobs really are just fundamentally insecure. And then our sort of what used to be a blue-collar working class, this has become like this gig economy. Mm. (laughs) And I mean, the gig economy is a nightmare, right? Like this is not how you want a society to be running because there is no stability. There is no sense of permanence. There is no sense of reliability. The anxiety actually does exist. The anxiety doesn't then cause racism, right? The the racism just exists free-floating and independent of all that. As you said, like the people who were storming the Capitol were not doing so because they were concerned about where their next meal was going to come from. But I do think that because of the way that the vast majority of just kind of like regular non-super elite people have been treated when it comes to their jobs, that we are building up a very deep volcano of anxiety, rage, and resentment, that we are starting to see it burst in various places, whether it's revolutionary or whether it's reactionary, it is destabilizing and it is coming. And my point has always been that there are things that people like congressmen or senators or presidents could do to make people's lives materially better just slightly. And I do think that we actually saw this a little bit like during the pandemic because, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but actually like during the pandemic, because of the unemployment benefits that did go out there, which in my opinion weren't enough because they needed to go to people who didn't have jobs in the first place, like there actually was like a reduction in poverty that happened over the summer of 2020 because people were actually just getting a little bit more money in their pockets. Instead of having no money, they now had like hundreds or thousands of dollars for the first time in in like a really, really long time. And I actually do think that that had a profoundly stabilizing effect on the country. And it actually wasn't horribly done. We just need to do more of that. (laughs) (laughs) And like, not just because a global pandemic is swept through, but I probably shouldn't swear on the podcast. Um, Am I allowed to swear on the podcast? Yeah. Okay, we should just fucking give people money, man. Like, what the fuck? Um, This is not actually that hard. We have plenty of money. We have plenty of ability to do all these things. But the problem is we have this sort of intransigent, myopic elite who are just like, oh, we can't give poor people a little bit more money because I don't even know why. Just... Just do it and stabilize your country instead of what you're doing right now, which is just continuing to let the volcano build and build and build until it erupts, which right now, I mean, we're on a course for the whole thing blowing up. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a bit about your experience. You've been living for the last few years in in France. Um, I, if I remember right to research this book originally, but it, it sounds like France is a nice place to live for other reasons as well. <laughs> um, but... It's interesting to me because there, there's so much about what happened in the Capitol and everything leading up to it that is is very American and very specific to us in our history. But 
as you know well, there's a strong far right in France. There's a strong mm-hmm. anti-immigrant movement there and in, in most countries in, in continental Europe. And I'm curious what living there and, and experiencing that side of, of French politics and experiencing it side by side with what you know as an American has shaped your thinking on this. Are there things that, that France is doing better or worse in terms of managing that threat or to keep the volcano under wraps? Or are they making a lot of the same mistakes? I I think generally, like really specific. So I've, I've been in France for three years and we, we are actually coming back over the summer. Our time in Paris is coming to an end. So we lived here for a very, very interesting stretch because right when we first got here, you know, the Gilets Jaunes movement was regular. Like they would come to Paris every Saturday and sometimes it was just marching around and sometimes they were knocking this stuff is, over. This is the yellow vest were, just for, for not for Yeah, excuse me. Yeah, so, so this is the yellow vest movement. And, you know, what the yellow vests were about initially was that Macron wanted to start working on like an environmental legislation. And the way that he wanted to do it was by jacking up the gas tax. And jacking up the gas tax had a profoundly negative impact on people in rural France who are not as well off and who relied on their cars to get around. And France is actually a very car-dependent country. It's the most car-dependent country in Europe because of a lot of the subsidies that they gave to the auto manufacturers um, back in the 70s and 80s. So so they came along. So I, I watched a lot of street violence. You know, my wife was out like out for a jog and saw SWAT team, you know, like unload right in front of her and, and charge at Gilets John protesters. You know, I was watching tear gas and, and smoke and burning car fumes just sort of like stream over my apartment. So I saw all of that, right? And then I also saw this, and this actually was going on right before COVID hit, which was the largest transportation strike in like 30 or 40 years which was massive. And I, I mean, I saw street protests, the likes of which I've never seen in my life. And I've, you know, I've been to protests, I've been to demonstrations, but the stuff that was happening here right at the end of 2019, which was about reorganizing the pension plan for the transportation workers, because a lot of what the sort of the, the prevailing orthodoxy among the French elite, the French, we call them the ruling class, is that they actually need to move in a more American direction and to loosen up a lot of the sort of state guarantees and to rationalize the system and and privatize things as much as possible. So in that sense, there is a problem with provoking people and trying to take away things from them that they already have, as opposed to what's happening in America, which is trying to give people things that they don't yet have already. And there is a joke about the French that they are a people who live in heaven, but think they live in hell. And that is a lot of what drives their attitudes about things. And um, there are people here who complain about the transportation worker strike because the transportation workers actually have a pretty great deal. They have a very strong union and they have great pay and they have great benefits. Um, and they're you know still willing to go to the mat if anybody tries to take away from them the things that they've already won, which I think is kind of proof positive that maybe you know fighting for things actually does get you things. There is a broader question, though, about sort of the racial dynamics here in France and here in Europe versus the United States. And here, no, nobody really argues that there are racial dynamics at play in American politics. Now, you might say people are making too much of race, which I don't happen to agree with. 
but you could say that. But nobody's saying race doesn't play a part in American politics. Everybody knows that it does. In France, they really try to pretend like it's not a thing. And they're really committed to this colorblind ideology where if you are a citoyen of France, then you are a citoyen. And there are no black French or Arab French or European French. There are only French citizens. And they are really blind to a lot of the the racism that goes on here. And so when you have Le Pen and Front National, or I guess they're called National Rally now, tapping into racial resentment and xenophobia that is very real and very present and very visceral, especially against Muslims, especially because it all goes back to Algeria, they are just sort of blind to. And I think that that is something that is very troubling for how France is going to handle uh, what the future has in store for the whole world, which is what? We all know what's coming in 10 years, 20 years. It's already happening, which is climate change leading to population shifts uh, across the globe. Like We are going to be dealing with migrations of people as a result of a changing climate, and we know that this is coming. So I'm very concerned about how Europe is going to face that because I think that the dry runs if you want to call them that, that have been going on for the past couple of years, I don't think that they have performed in any kind of admirable or moral way. And the same thing is happening in the United States, but at least in the United States, you know, you can you can admit that there are real differences and tensions between black America and white America in a way that you just can't talk about in France. It's crazy. Yeah, that is has always been a striking thing that just the conversation, even more than the observed realities, is so different and, and so much more hesitant. Oh, yeah. I mean, and Macron, because there were some Black Lives Matter stuff that happened here in France. And, you know, the, the intellectual sort of elites, on the talking heads on the TV and uh, all the way up to Macron were just like, why are you importing these racist <laughs> terms and tropes from America? It's like, buddy, you guys are racist <laughs> as hell. <laughs> like, yeah, like, this is not coming from America. They are using terms that are being imported, sure, from like American activists, um, but they're using it to describe the situation that they experience like on a daily basis. Because a lot of people in Europe generally like to sort of, they they have a superiority complex about what goes on in the United States and what goes on in other places doesn't happen in Europe. And it's just like, dude, we're all just post-European colonies, right? Like everything that we are as Americans, you know, we we learned it from watching you, Dad. <laughs> you know, like I, that's that's where it comes from. It's you. It's not. We didn't invent this. Well, I guess uh, maybe a, a place to end would be talking about our sibling. If Europe is Dad, you've talked a, a lot in the podcast. Uh, you had a season on Haiti, a season on Bolivar, a season on Mexico about sort of Latin America and the Caribbean more broadly. And we we often use European analogies for the U.S., which makes sense given how much sort of shared intellectual and other connections we have. But there are a lot of things about Trumpism that that feel like maybe a little like Perón in in Argentina or other sort of strongmen or or authoritarian tendencies. I'm curious what, what studying those experiences and studying this hemisphere has taught you about the present moment and, and what sort of parallels or lessons you can draw? Well, like, so the stuff that I have covered in the show was, you know, most of the liberation of Spanish America, which was the parallel movement to what was happening up in the United States. And it was driven by many of the same factors and driven by many of the same reasons. You're talking about white, criollo, 
aristocracy who wanted to break away from the mother country. And that's what was driving a lot of what Bolivar and guys like uh, San Martin were up to. But if you fast forward to Mexico, which Mexico had, for example, its own war of independence, and then 100 years later had the Mexican Revolution where everybody's fighting it out over things. I don't quite see yet America going the way that sort of the Latin American dictatorships were set up in the wake of the retreat of the Spanish Empire in the 1820s and the 1830s, because the way that most of most of those governments were set up with military strongmen, and then they would give it the pretense of democracy. But if you lost an election, you would just ignore it, or you would rig the election and say like, yes, I've, I've won a mandate. You know, we've all seen this behavior of manipulating an election to say, yes, I've won it. And so, of course, now we're watching something like this happen in the United States. But at the moment, there is still this important divide between the civilian movements that Trump is overseeing and the American military. And I don't, this is not to be like, there's a deep state that's opposed <laughs> to Trump, right? Like it's, I'm not talking about that. I just mean that the, the United States military is pretty professional and pretty independent of any given political leader or political party. You know, you can look ideologically at the officer corps and it breaks down pretty evenly. You look at the political affiliations of the rank and file. Yeah, sure. You're going to find a lot more conservatives and Republicans who are supportive of it. But institutionally, the military is not really linked to or backed by any specific strongman. We're not really seeing the crossover general become politician, goes back to being general, goes back to being a politician. And I do think that there is something to that distinction between the way that the United States originated and the way that places like Venezuela or you know Chile or, or Argentina, the way that they came of age in their own youth. And I don't know exactly where that divide came from or why that divide happened, like why one went one way and one why went the other. But I do think that there is something to that because I, you know, Trump's Trump's not a general, but Chavez, he's coming out of the military. And I think that that connection between them is kind of a definitive feature. And we're not really seeing that with Trump at the moment. These guys, yeah, of course, they're putting on camo and they're wearing tactical gear, but this is not like actual literal U.S. military battalions are marching through Washington, D.C., or like all those guys were like ready to go at the drop of a hat. I just don't think that that would have happened at the moment. Maybe things could change in the future, but I think the military is pretty well out of the game at the moment. We're going to take a short break, but when we're back, listening to Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast has given me a long list of recommended reading. So what's required reading for a nervous American living through these crazy times? We'll find out what Mike Duncan recommends after the break. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. 
That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. One last question. Your show is great for book recommendations for me, and I've I've gotten a, a long bibliography to get through from it. If I'm an American right now who is very nervous about where things are going, what should I be reading? What kind of stuff should I be learning about? Oh, well, you should read The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic. Oh, who wrote that? By Mike Duncan. (laughs) I wrote that book. (laughs) And it's all about how republics fall apart. (laughs) So you should definitely read that book so you can go to bed happy each night and have some of your economic anxiety alleviated by the fact that it's all going to fall apart. So Storm Before the Storm is all about the the end of the Roman Republic and the, the frictions that led to that. Uh, your new book is about the birth of two republics. Tell me a bit about that and what we should be looking forward to. Yeah, so coming out of revolutions, doing the American Revolution, and then I moved on to the French Revolution, and then went through the Haitian Revolution, then came back around and did the Revolution of 1830, which that run of episodes kind of covers the age of democratic revolution in a way. And the Marquis de Lafayette just wound up being a through line through everything that happened. So he came over to the United States as just like this 19-year-old who ran away from home, basically. He was unhappy at home. He had a bad relationship with his father-in-law and ran away from home to go fight in the Continental Army. And he did, and he was really successful. And so Americans love him because he's like this, he was this French aristocrat who came over and, and, and helped us stick it to the British. And then he went back and took with him a lot of what he had picked up in the United States, or at least sort of the idealistic part of the American Revolution, uh, these notions of liberty and equality, and took it back to what was this incredibly unequal and very dysfunctional French monarchy. The you know, Ancien Regime France was broken in a bunch of different ways. And, you know, uh, Lafayette was this incredibly idealistic reformer, and he wanted to push the kingdom to change. And so he was very involved in the reform movements and then ultimately revolutionary movements all into the 1780s until 1789 cracks and the French Revolution gets going. 
And he's a major player in the first two or three years of the French Revolution. He's right in the thick of everything. You know, he's authoring the Declaration of the Rights of Man and putting that out there because he wants France to have something like what he saw going on in the United States. And then, of course, Lafayette becomes a, a real symbol of what happened to the French Revolution was the increasing radicalization as things progressed. And people like Robespierre and Danton and the Committee of Public Safety did not like Lafayette. And he wound up being expelled from the French Revolution, as so many people did, although he did avoid getting his head chopped off. And the thing is, is like most accounts of Lafayette and most treatments of his life just sort of cut out at that point. You know, by the time, you know, Napoleon comes around, Lafayette just goes into retirement and you don't really see any hear anything about him. And then he dies in like the 1830s. But the thing is, he was incredibly active for the whole rest of his life. He lived for another 30, 35 years after all this. And after the French Restoration, which is when the Bourbons came back after the fall of Napoleon, he went right back to being a reformist liberal politician. And he saw the reactionary powers of Europe beginning to reassert control over Europe in the wake of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. And he was continuing to try to push back against all of that. He never really lost his drive to have liberty and equality be foundational principles of the way that our societies ought to govern themselves. And so he winds up joining, you know, like underground conspiracies to try to overthrow the French king, King Louis XVIII. And then later he's a major player in the revolution of 1830, which is ultimately him and a bunch of other liberals getting together and joining with uh, like students and, uh, and workers in the streets of Paris to overthrow King Charles X, who was this reactionary bourbon king and, and kick him out of the country. And so he's he just lived this life over, God, you know, 50 years of just continually trying to press for progressive liberal notions of liberty and equality. Wherever he went, he was, um, as we said earlier, he came out of the United States and just didn't understand how you couldn't believe those things and not be an abolitionist. So he was an abolitionist for his whole life. And he had this very complicated relationship with abolitionism that I will talk all about in the book. And if you're interested in it, uh, it's called Hero of Two Worlds, the Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution. It won't be out until like August, but it can be pre-ordered now. And I just, I don't know, the guy is, uh, he's right in the thick of so many things that kind of define the way the modern world actually operates. Well, I can't wait to be vaccinated and outdoors reading Hero of Two Worlds in August. Uh, <laughs> but until then, thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to be vaccinated so I can go on a dang book tour. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Vox Conversations. The show is produced by Zach Mack. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our consulting editor is Allison McAdam, with additional editorial help this week from Amy Drovstoska. Liz Kelly Nelson is Vox's editorial director of podcasts, and we want to know what you think of Vox Conversations. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with ideas of future guests or even future hosts or just things you think you'd like to hear on the show. If you want to get in touch, send us an email, voxconversations at vox.com. Or if you want to rate and review the show wherever you listen, go ahead and do that. That always helps. Thanks for listening. More soon.